You're listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Amit, one of the PhD students of the program. Politics and sports, despite our best attempts at telling ourselves otherwise, are inherently chained to one another. One need only look at Eminem taking a knee as an act of solidarity with Colin Kaepernick and the Black Lives Matter movement recently at the Super Bowl halftime show to see how the field, the pitch, and the arena are hardly apolitical. The world of sports is political, and politics will always be subject to the eyes of athletic activism. This is an undeniable truth going back to the days when Muhammad Ali protested the American government by refusing the draft to Vietnam, or that iconic moment on a warm night in Mexico City when Tommy Smith and John Carlos made the salute to Black Power at the podium of the Olympics. In more recent years, anti-racist activism has become embraced by athletes from across leagues, perhaps reaching its height in the 2020 season when athletes from the NBA and WNBA, alongside Major League Baseball and even the ever-militant NFL, placed the fight against racism and police brutality to the forefront of the game. But now, two years removed from that season of revolution, the ways in which politics is manifested on the field, the pitch, and the arena has taken on a very different tone, with many athletes no longer reflecting the call for racial justice, but rather the chorus of anti-politics and conspiracy that has become endemic of right-wing politics in the pandemic era. How has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted athletic activism across leagues? How have anti-vax figures like Aaron Rodgers and Kyrie Irving impacted the broader political environment? And what are the political implications to be drawn from the Winter Olympics currently taking place in Beijing? On this special episode of the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, we will tackle these questions and more as we present our third annual episode charting the politics of the game with Professor Aaron Ettinger. Dr. Ettinger is a professor with Carleton's Department of Political Science, specializing in international relations, American-Canadian foreign policy, and international political economy. Professor Ettinger, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Good to be back, I suppose, even though I haven't left my kitchen table in two years. I mean, I've been in this room, which what feels like for two decades at this point, even though I haven't lived in this apartment for more than five months, so I know the feeling. Yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable. I mean, the other day I taught, uh, you know, I did taught my class at Carleton and then did a guest spot at, at uh, U of T, uh, all without leaving the chair where I ate my breakfast. It's remarkable stuff. The future is now, man. <laughs> but these, you know, these are my favorite episodes. And it feels like every year we do one, there's always a round of the politics of the game. And the last time we spoke, it was a pretty major juncture when it comes to sports activism. There was the Wildcats strike across different leagues, really led by the NBA. We even saw you know, the NFL, who traditionally has this very militant stance when it comes to protests. Even they were relenting. You know? Politics still very much is front and center in the world of sports. But I think we can both agree that it's a very different atmosphere versus two years ago. So how has the political climate changed in the game since our last chat? To me, the biggest change is that athletes are no longer leading in all of this stuff. So those wildcat strikes that you talked about and the, you know, the taking of the knee and the Black Lives Matter stuff, uh, these were all prompted by athletes taking the lead, being ahead of public opinion and taking really quite taking stances that were outside of the mainstream, at least at that time. 
you fast forward a year and a half or two years. And for the most part, we see athletes, whatever, of whatever political persuasion sort of converging on pre-existing idea sets and pre-existing patterns. The biggest one, of course, being COVID issues, uh, where you see the majority of professional athletes taking their shots and being smart about it and being reasonable, uh, as most people in you know North American society have done, and a relatively vocal minority, a uh, number of contrarians there who make the news, sort of uh, you know being recalcitrant and intransigent about uh, about vaccination mandates and all that kind of stuff, and so in that regard, you know these athletes have fallen in with their respective groups, if we can call it that, uh, of like-minded people in public opinion. Very few are actually leading in public opinion right now, trying to change the public discourse. It's nothing like what we saw back in the bubble in 2020 with the NBA or with the Black Lives Matter and the kneeling protests in in the NFL and so on. So in that sense, the climate of sports and politics in North American sports, for sure, has sort of settled into some very, very familiar patterns, uh, except for that one flashpoint, which is the much broader social pla- uh, flashpoint of vaccines and vaccination mandates. I'm glad that you mentioned that because the pandemic, it obviously is the most salient issue in politics today across the world, and it's really impacted all aspects of political life. It's really hard to pick just one area and say this is the biggest impact, but I think an argument could be made about the way that's really facilitated the mainstreaming of conspiracy politics. And, you know, This issue in particular seems to be pretty relevant for what we're talking about. For the issues you just brought up, you know, especially in terms of how it's been embraced by elite level players like Kyrie Irving or Aaron Rodgers. How do you think they've impacted the public discourse surrounding the pandemic? And do they have a civic responsibility to be vaccinated, not only because of their place in the public eye, but even just as a person on a field or a court with other people? Uh, Well, to the second question, yeah, of course, they have a civic responsibility because they're citizens of their society and have some kind of duty to one another to, you know, not do harm. And vaccinations are a pretty non-intrusive way of, of not doing harm to other people. Do they have responsibility to their peers and union brothers in their professional sports? Well, of course they do. I would be furious if I was an athlete on the pitch or on the court or wherever with an unvaccinated player because, you know, it's it, it's my career, it's my livelihood that's at stake. Especially I would feel that way if I was not an elite level athlete and where my career may only last one or two or three seasons. Uh, to the question you know, have they moved public opinion or have they affected, impacted public discourse? I don't think so. Uh, because the people that you're talking about, Djokovic, of, of Kyrie Irving, of Aaron Rodgers, sort of made their stand once the positions on vaccines had already been set. And so, you know, I don't think they've persuaded anybody to change their opinions. For the most part, they're just preaching to their pre-existing choirs, which is, disappointing in a lot of ways. Uh, And it's particularly disappointing when it comes to somebody like Aaron Rodgers, who is perhaps smarter than the average bear or packer, if you want to put it in those terms, 
uh, you know, he's he's perhaps a little bit more literate, a little bit more well-spoken than your typical professional athlete. He can string four or five sentences together on a single topic. But the way he has articulated his stance has been remarkably unpersuasive. I, he has revealed himself to be far less bright than, you know, he probably thinks he is. Uh, and in that regard, he's sort of flattened the sports and politics discourse in ways that have made it very uninteresting and very, you know, it, it is not illuminating in any meaningful way. You take a look at the, you know, the language that he used. So much of what Aaron Rodgers has talked about in terms of his vaccine controversy since November was about his, quote, personal choice, about his, you know, his freedom, about, you know, his objection to mandates, all the kind of, you know, bolderized statements that you see coming out of politicians who don't want to make too big a set of waves or protest signs who don't want to reveal themselves to be anti-science, anti-vaxxers. And it's really dull and mediocre. Now, there's a dog whistle element to this, right? The anti-vax type is going to gravitate towards an Aaron Rodgers or Novak Djokovic or whomever. And he's certainly not going to persuade the vast, vast majority of people who have been vaccinated and think that kind of language is a bunch of nonsense. So, you know, we're at a stage where the bar is set extraordinarily low and nobody really wants to confront anybody on it, on, on the intellectual substance of vaccine rejectionism. For the most part in the sports and politics discourse, People say it's their choice, and I'm not going to judge a person for their choice, which is an abdication, I think, of uh, the intellectual responsibilities that we have to say that somebody has made a bad call when they make a bad call. I want to stick to Aaron Rodgers for a second, just because you know some of the stuff you discussed there, like the whole freedom liberty argument, but also other claims he's made in terms of critical thought or the notion of being silenced. I can't help but draw... I guess, a parallel or a distinction in a way uh, to someone we've talked about quite a bit in the past, which is Colin Kaepernick. You know, just because of how differently his activism was met, not just by the NFL, but the public sphere more broadly. What do you think accounts for these differences that we've seen between Cap and Rogers in terms of how, they've, how the reaction has been to them? Is it yeah. just an issue of the context of the pandemic or is there something deeper to it? I think the, the, the easy answer is that one is black and one is white. But I think the difference is perhaps more interesting than that. Colin Kaepernick's protest made everybody look in the mirror. Right? He challenged fundamental notions of who we are and what we believe. Uh, and he took a significant career hit for that. Right? In Kaepernick, his protest was against real intractable problems in American society and Canadian society, these deep-seated matters that have uh, no easy answer. And Colin Kaepernick forced everybody to confront very uncomfortable realities about society, which implicated everybody. Uh, and people don't like that, right? People don't want to be challenged that deeply, especially not by professional athletes. They don't mind the kind of superficial stuff that you get from Aaron Rodgers, right? Aaron Rodgers is playing small ball compared to Colin Kaepernick. Right? He didn't, Rodgers that is, didn't ask any interesting questions really, didn't force anybody to look at themselves in the mirror and 
consider their pre-existing positions. He didn't raise any tremendously philosophical challenges to the prevailing order of things. He didn't cost anybody any money. He didn't draw political rebukes from high, you know, high-profile politicians. Uh, and perhaps most importantly, in the NFL, he continued to win games. And in the NFL, uh, winning solves everything. And so that, in my mind, accounts for the real interesting difference between Kaepernick and Rogers. Kaepernick asked difficult questions. Aaron Rodgers did not. Now that Aaron Rodgers has kind of flamed out in the playoffs, uh, you know, here in January and February of 2021, the way we view him might change in retrospect. But, you know, in the early months of, of 2022, for the most part, Aaron Rodgers was forgiven for his transgressions. He served his, you know, five or 10 day quarantine he took a PR hit for a little while, but then, you know, won five or seven games in a row and all was forgiven, which is deeply, deeply disappointing. So is it safe to say that you don't think Aaron Rodgers is the next athletic folk hero? The next athletic folk hero. He might be the athletic folk hero for the, uh, you know, for the mediocre, semi-intelligent, half-literate, anti-vax, open-minded people, open-minded community. I mean, I don't want to be too insulting here or anything like that. Uh, but, you know, I, becoming a folk hero, it's, it's very difficult to imagine a guy who makes, you know, whatever, $100 million to throw a football who held out against his team uh, and complains bitterly about having to do anything against his will uh, as being a folk hero. So I change direction. Um, and talk about the pandemic response when it comes to different leagues, because you, you made reference to this earlier. If we go back to the start of the pandemic, we saw innovations like the NBA bubble really give way to approaches that put public health front and center. And we compare that to today when you know infection rates are at their absolute highest and we've pivoted away from that or leagues have pivoted away from that. You know, do you think the leagues have been doing the right thing when it comes to the audience or even the players on the field or, you know, does the situation demand that they think about the work and continuing to do the work? Yeah. I mean, leagues are more or less at the mercy of the jurisdictions that they're in. Right. So attendance capacity limits are put in place by the province or the city or the state or whatever, where the leagues did do the smart thing is in requiring vaccinations for their players. And so you have, vaccination rates that are higher than the general population in the major sports leagues, which is great, which is important, which makes sense. These are, you know, high performing athletes who, you know, who, who are also investments by the team owners. And so it behooves them to make sure that these investments don't, don't, you know, develop a respiratory disease that might cost them a lot of money. As for things like COVID protocols and close contact at, uh, you know, tracing or restrictions on where they can go during the off hours, that has been scaled back a considerable amount over the last three or four months. You know, during the Omicron phase of the pandemic since November 2021, we have seen leagues actually, you know, retract a lot of the 
uh, a lot of these COVID protocols, which is why, you know, Aaron Rodgers in November or December could contract COVID and really only be on the sidelines for a couple of days. Yeah, he missed one particular Sunday, but he was not away from the team for a two-week period. I don't know if that was a good idea or a bad idea on the part of the leagues, because it would seem that the leagues maybe were a little bit ahead of public health agencies. And public health agencies have sort of uh, also scaled back quarantine or isolation periods. Uh, and the professional sports leagues were a little bit ahead of them back in November. I don't know the answer. I don't know if how, how I will view this or how I view this right now, but the leagues have done the important thing, I think, which is mandate vaccines on behalf of their players uh, and act as good corporates, acted in that capacity, acted as good corporate citizens for their communities. So as we're recording this, you know, one of the biggest and arguably most controversial sporting events of the year is in full swing, and that's the Beijing Winter Olympics. You know, Olympic Games always seem to be, you know, surrounded by sort of contentious politics and political intrigue of the wrong kind. But what do you think makes this year's games stand out? Oh, these are the supervillain games, right? I mean, they're being held in an authoritarian country that is actively perpetuating a genocide and stamping out enclaves of democracy. I mean, come on, like you couldn't write this kind of stuff. So, you know, that is the political intrigue that is surrounding the Beijing Winter Olympics. Oh, yes. And did I mention that it's all within the context of the pandemic in which Beijing has basically built a huge open air prison for the Olympic Games? Like nobody finds this fun. Nobody finds this engaging in any meaningful way. I mean, respect to the amateur athletes and all that kind of stuff. But it's very difficult to pretend that this is any sort of like watching it is, is in any way like ethical consumerism or something along those lines. I mean, for crying out loud, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, the, the one-two punch of the authoritarian great powers held a bilateral meeting the other day and released a joint statement on how the two are going to cooperate over the coming years. Uh, I mean, this is, this is, this is James Bond level super, super villainy. So yes, you know, the Olympics are always overtly political, despite what the IOC would like to say that we shouldn't politicize things. This is a non-political thing. It's a bunch of nonsense anyways. But this time around, the politics are just so much more pernicious. And it makes the Olympic Games so profoundly unfun, at least for this viewer. Now, I mean, okay, what really gets me here and what has always gotten me is the sanctimony surrounding the Olympics. And we've seen this going back decades and all that kind of stuff. These days, the sanctimony to me is, is like intellectually unsustainable. And, you know, when I'm watching the news and the people in my household can attest to this, when I'm watching the news on the CBC, I, I, I'm, I'm always struck by the sort of split personality of the CBC news reporting because, you know, at once they'll cover the hard news and then about, you know, about genocide or, or Xi Jinping or whatever, and then immediately switch to, you know, the, and now for a medals update from the Beijing games and you have grinning hosts pretending like everything is hunky dory and it's all fun and games. Uh, and it, it's just stunning that 
these two ideas can be held in their minds at the same time. You know, it's like F. Scott Fitzgerald's line, right? The test of a first rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. So, you know, I suppose those CBC hosts just are demonstrating nothing more than a first rate intelligence. It drives me bonkers. Uh, and I wish, I really wish that the diplomatic boycott of these Olympic games had extended to the athletes themselves. And if not the athletes, then something in between. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if there was a large diplomatic boycott of the Beijing games, which included a refusal to permit athletes to perform under their national flags. So you'd see something like Olympic athlete from Canada, Olympic athlete from the United States, and in that way, the athletes could still compete, but democratic countries wouldn't lend their, you know, imprimatur to the games themselves. That is wishful thinking. There's just too much money at play to go that far into it. But whatever, the sanctimony, if, if I'm really complaining about sanctimony in the Olympic Games, uh, then you have every right to say, well, what did you expect, Professor? I sense there's a bit of venom towards the current situation in the games. Uh, yeah, a lot of it is very personal, mostly because I don't like it. It's just a personal thing. I'm not a fan. I don't get excited about these Olympic games. And if it's and it's bad television, too. Right? We've talked about this in the past. The television, that sports is a television show. And, you know, it, it, with professional sports and amateur sports, it's it's got to be live. There has to be a sense of the unexpected. I don't want to wake up in the morning and know what the outcome is and then be expected to watch. That's that, that's no good. So for the last question here, I want to do a bit of a throwback just because you know me, I like my throwbacks. And during our last round of the politics of the game, I asked you what the 2020 season would be remembered for. As you only could, you eloquently made the case for this joint, disjointed season amidst political rupture. And here we are some two years later with leagues trying to pretend it's business as usual and people seemingly okay with going along with it. So what do you think we will look back upon this year in sports and think 10, 20 years down the line. I was thinking about this and my, my answer is, is I don't know. And it's not because, you know, you know, the year just started and it has yet to be written, but because we're in this sort of in-between zone, we're in this gray zone between pandemic and post-pandemic, right? And, and so it, it's all very ambiguous, there's this halfway point where, you know, we have some people in the crowd, but, but not full capacity. The game, you know, games are still being played. The leagues still operate, uh, but clearly things have not returned fully to normal. So there is this uncanniness to it all. So in that regard, we are definitely going to look back on 2020 as the benchmark year, as the pandemic year. And even though we're still in a pandemic a year and two years later, a decade from now, we might look back and sort of forget what happened in 2021, 2022, because 2020 was the real flashpoint. In the same way that, you know, you can look back a century and we can say, okay, so the Spanish flu, that was 1919, right? Who won the World Series in 1920, 1921? Anybody remember? We do know that 1920 was the end of the dead ball era. So that's the important benchmark date there in baseball. But, you know, how will we look back upon this? I don't know. I think it will be with a great deal of ambiguity because 2020 will just loom so large. 
So lastly, you know, you're obviously a prolific scholar. We all have no choice but to stay at our desks and work away. What have you been working on lately? Tell us about your work. Prolific. Uh, that makes me feel very inadequate. Uh, you know, I've got a number of uh, a number of research projects on the go, but I think the most intellectually stimulating thing right now is what I'm doing in the classroom. Right now, in this term, this is the winter 2022 term, I am teaching a fourth year class on transatlantic security issues. And so in the class, we're learning the history of NATO and its evolution and its modernization and all that kind of stuff in parallel with the crisis in Ukraine. And so we get to read the day-to-day -day stuff against the historical stuff on a weekly basis. And it is, it is nothing short of an enormous privilege to be able to do that with these wonderful kids, these wonderful students who are intelligent, who are alert to everything going on. And in, in so doing, we get to sort of bring conceptual order to what is taking place. It's very easy to, to, to get lost in the kind of obscure and arcane details of the Russia-Ukraine-NATO-US conflict. Let's throw China in there for good measure. Being able to parse these things out on a weekly basis is really the most rewarding thing that I'm working on right now. I fully feel what you're saying there. I'm teaching my first course now, as I've mentioned, it's the politics of race. And every week we're talking about historic stuff, but it's always like, well, let's talk about what's happening right now. You know, a few weeks ago, we decided to talk, we we're doing a course on the social construction of race, and it ended up being a 40-minute conversation. It was supposed to be a five-minute sort of introductory thing of me using the convoy to, that's coming on its way to Ottawa at the time uh, to discuss the social construction of race. It ended up being this beautiful 45-minute conversation with people who you know, were feeling the threat in their own community. And you know, every week we go back to it. And it's, it's incredible to have that connection between the sort of historic stuff we have to teach them, the articles they have to read, but also having it unfold before their eyes as well. It is the best thing, isn't it? And isn't it great that the students in the, our classrooms are just so reasonable? They're thoughtful. And it every time I see a headline that screams about snowflakes or campus cancel culture and that kind of nonsense, I think, man, just step into any classroom and see how bright and engaged some of these students are. and. You know, there will be hope for the future. I can tell you that. This has been great, Aaron. Thanks so much for taking the time. Hopefully we can do this again soon. You better believe it. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore poly sci, on Instagram at CU underscore poly dot sci, and on Facebook at carltonu.polysci.